podcast. I'm Joel Porter, and on behalf of Steve Rolneck and Ange, I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Uh, this week, um, we talked about um, motivational interviewing and a theory. And part of what we were wondering was, does MI have a theory or does MI need a theory? So we pulled together um, quite an array of guests to help us unpack this topic. We had uh, Bill Neto from Sydney, uh, Terry Moyers from New Mexico, Alan Zukoff from New Jersey, and um, Kathy Gumas from Northern Ireland. Unfortunately, Steve couldn't make this one, but I, I think we had a pretty robust conversation. It started off not exactly in the direction I had anticipated, and about halfway through it, I think we talked to the point where we were actually getting into it. So I'm thinking there's going to be a part two of this conversation. Um, a couple of people have asked for that, and so we'll try to organize that. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and we'll look forward to um, hearing any feedback that you have. Take care. We'll give it to seven minutes past, and then we'll go for okay, it. Okay, that sounds good. You tell us when to go, and we'll take off. Harry, are you filing your nails? Um, <laughs> uh, gentle instruments. Oh, <laughs> I used to clean my dog's teeth. Uh, I, I, I'm busted. So let me mute myself. I'll stop when we start. <laughs> I, I thought the same thing, but I wasn't going to say it out loud. Well, I just thought I would ask. <laughs> You're old friend. Why not? You can't clean get your in your doggy's dog. mouth with a dull tool. That's not going to work. Yeah, my, dog, my dog would hate that. But it's a lot cheaper than doing it in the vet. They don't have to put them down. Okay, let's get ready to go. All right, we got Terry filing her dental instruments. I'm done. I'm stopping. That's all right. You know, some people doodle, some people, you know, have little finger. I have a coloring book here too, but that's a little quieter. So maybe I'll do that. Terry files her. Let's just start. Dave's worried about you flossing your teeth, Terry. Oh, it's my dog's teeth. <laughs> I use these on my dog, not myself. All right, Angel, we ready? Let's go for it. Okay. Okay. Um, good morning, good evening, good day, everybody. Um, I'm Joel Porter in Christchurch, New Zealand, here with uh, a, a group of friends and colleagues and um on behalf of Steve, I need to put in his apologies. He had to miss today. He had something come up that was uh, he needed to deal with. Um, he may show up. He may come flying in at some point. Um, and he certainly sends his regrets for not being here. However, we have uh, quite a panel of people here to talk about this idea of theory and motivational interviewing. And I'll let everybody kind of introduce themselves and um, say whatever you want to say. And then we'll start off with, um, with Bill sharing, Bill Neto sharing some of his thoughts. Um, Ange, why don't you start us? Sure. Hi, hello everyone and welcome. My name is Ange Watkins and I'm providing tech support 
from a very sunny summer solstice Wales. Good to be here. Thank you. Alan? Hi, I'm Alan Zukoff, uh, coming to you from the New Jersey shore or nearby. Um, my, uh, I have had a long standing interest in theory and MI, as some of you know, and uh, glad to have this opportunity to have these conversations. Uh, I'm with a company called Vital Decisions. I spend most of my time these days doing uh, doing clinical program development in advanced care planning, using MI as a basis for, for our process. But I spent a couple of decades at the University of Pittsburgh doing clinical trials research re related to MI in a variety of contexts. And uh, that's right. me. Kathy. Good evening, morning, midnight, whatever time it is with you. It's uh, lovely to be here and be invited um, to this conversation. Uh, I'm Cathy Gumaz. I live near Belfast in Northern Ireland. And yes, it's um, the beginning of summer apparently here. We don't have much sun, but it is still beautifully bright and warmer. Um, my background, I'm uh, professionally trained uh, as a nurse. I worked in the field and of substance misuse for uh, nearly all of my career um, in relation to uh, at a clinical and at an administrative role. And as a MI trainer, I have been a member of the Mint community for um, a few decades now and thoroughly enjoy it and continue to grow and develop. So this is another lovely opportunity to formulate some thoughts on what I think I believe or don't know what I believe. But I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Fantastic. Terry. Hey, you all. Uh, Terry Moyers here from the lovely land of enchantment, uh, New Mexico in southwestern uh, United States, where it is uh, blessedly, blissfully raining. Uh, we've had a lot of rain just the last couple of days after lots of drought, so we're all happy here, very happy. I am a professor at the University of New Mexico, and I spend a lot of time thinking about theory in motivational interviewing, and sometimes I do some research about that as well. So it's a real pleasure to join you all and to be with this distinguished panel and also uh, some good friends on this panel as well. And um, I welcome you in whatever time zone you are in. Welcome. And Bill. Yes, uh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. Uh, it is my great pleasure to be here among the greatest name in behavior change in the world. I am a psychologist uh, by profession. I started my career over 30 years ago as a motivational interviewing counselor in the area of smoking, smoking cessation. And ever, ever since, motivational interviewing has been a major part of what I, what I do as a clinician. And I also conduct uh, research in psychological research in the area of healthcare corrections, and also work health and safety. So my great pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> well, the, um, the idea of this topic came from um, 
a brief conversation Steve and I had about, well, what are we going to talk about this month? And um, I was thinking about a couple of things. One was um, a, an exchange a long time ago on our listserv with the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers around theory. And I remember Alan had a big voice in that. And then Bill and Bill Miller and Gary Rose put out a paper and the American psychologist, I believe, on towards the theory of motivational interviewing. Correct. Um, and but then and then things just kind of fizzled out amongst our little MI geek world. And um, and then Bill Miller introduced a paper that Bill Neto wrote um, around motivational interviewing and some very interesting thoughts about maybe some what's underpinning motivational interviewing. And I thought we'd start, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought we'd start and just allow Bill to share some of his ideas and um, get the conversation going. Uh, thank you very much. Um, as we all know, we never really had a theory of uh, motivational interviewing. The delivery of MI-based uh, interventions has always been based on the efficacy data that clearly shows that motivational interviewing works, but without this theor uh, theoretical basis that allows for comprehensive um, understanding. And past attempts to provide motivational interviewing with a theoretical basis they were very important because they focused on the causes of behavior change, which is an important area in motivational interviewing. We need to know what the causes of behavior change are. But one thing that they didn't do that they actually neglected was to explain the underlying mechanisms by which processes used in motivational interviewing induces behavior change. And I personally believe that if we are to understand why and how motivational interviewing works, we need to understand these underlying mechanisms by which processes used in MI induces behavior change. So in December 2017, I published an article entitled Understanding Motivational Interviewing, an Evolutionary Perspective. And in this paper, I used an evolutionary framework to make sense of why and how motivational interviewing influences behavior. So in other words, I described the adaptive significance of the techniques used in MI. So for the next five minutes, I'll just uh, summarize um, this proposed um, theory of motivational interviewing to give listeners an idea of where I'm coming from. As we all know, within a motivational interviewing framework, when someone talks about change, the person becomes a lot more likely to change 
compared to when someone else talks about change and why is it the case? In order to answer this question, we must understand the phenomenon of psychological reactance. Psychological reactance, as we all know, is an innate tendency to act contrary to recommendations from others. A biological tendency to be oppositional. And the interesting thing about psychological reactance is that it is primed from our subcortical brain. And what does it mean? It means that oppositional behavior in the clinical setting is triggered independent of intentions a mechanism that happens below conscious awareness. And the interesting thing about um, psychological reactance is that it is part of a behavior system that evolved to facilitate group living. And how did it facilitate group living? Well, to answer this question, we need to take a look back at the history of the human race. We humans, we have been on Earth for approximately 200,000 years. And most of our existence, we spent as hunter-gatherers. In fact, 99% of our existence. And as hunter-gatherers, we lived in small, tight-knit groups, hunting animals and gathering plants for survival. And for our ancestors to live in such small, functional groups, social dominance, differentiation had to take place within the group. Who bosses who had to be determined in order to establish social order. It's only when social dominance differentiation is established within a group that we get stable hierarchies and the group can then function as a social unit as it allows for the division of labor and the coordination of tasks and activities, increasing the group's chances of survival. And acting contrary to communication from others, being oppositional, the phenomenon of psychological reactance played an important role in the formation of stable hierarchies. It is a signal that conveys social dominance within a group. It is a tactic for achieving and maintaining dominant status within a group. Implicit in having no say in terms of decision-making 
is social submissiveness, whereas having the option whether or not to adhere to communication from others signals dominance within a group. And to this day in human society, those that are easily influenced by others, they attain low dominance uh, status. They are labeled as pushovers and they are perceived as easily taken advantage of. So when we are told what to do, our instinctual brain intervenes. It literally thinks that uh, as a submissive act, it will lead to less access to resources and mating opportunities. And consequently, it prompts us to behave in the opposite way. It prompts us to be oppositional. And I must also add that this tendency to become oppositional, the phenomenon of psychological reactance, becomes more active when we perceive that we are in a position of power. For the simple fact that if we challenged a more powerful social dominant, it could lead to physical harm. So when we sense that it is we that are in our position of power, we tend to become oppositional. And when it comes to behavior change, it is the client, it is the individual that is in our position of power, not the counselor simply because it is the individual that decides how to conduct himself or herself. So for behavioral interventions to be effective, we must not trigger instinctual resistance to behavior change. In other words, we must not feel the we must not feel, make the individual feel that he or she is being pressured to behave in a certain way. Because if we do, they will use their instinctual survival mechanism to assert such position of power. Just went mute, Bill. Bill, we can't hear you. I don't know if he can hear us. Send him, okay. <clears throat> yeah, I know we're trying to, we're trying to connect up Bill again. I don't think he can hear us either. Um, can we get his attention visually? We can try. <laughs> he's in full thought, so he's... Um, no, he's, he's in full thought. 
the 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 tragic thing is when we were working when we were talking before we got going he was he was presenting at a conference and the exact same thing happened last week terry i can't you're muted too terry do you ever have that feeling like you're talking but no one's listening yes yeah all the time hey hey bill Someone chatting to him? Yeah, I think I think Angie is in the audience. Yes. All right. Um, so what? So during this interesting moment, why don't we? Until Bill can get connected again, um, why don't we begin sharing some thoughts and ideas? Hey, Bill, can you hear us? No. He's probably need, hey Ant, can you tell him he probably needs to reconnect? <laughs> I'm just noticing David's comment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're on fire tonight. <laughs> Thanks for that, David. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the uh thanks for the um the, the, the break there, Dave. Well, I imagine so, I'm not the only one who's chomping at the bit to get into this. Go ahead, Alan, jump in. No, 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 I'm not the only. I'm just saying. I think uh, this is. I'm, I, I'm looking forward to the conversation here. Actually, I I just noticed that um, my audio dropped. Yeah. Did you Did you hear the entire? No. We lost the last couple no. of minutes. Oh, we lost the last couple of minutes. Okay. So I'll try to start from the last couple of minutes. Um, what I was uh, what I was saying was that um, when we are told what to do, our instinctual survival brain intervenes. It literally thinks that as a submissive act, it will lead to less access to resources and mating opportunities. And one thing that we need to keep in mind is that our rational brain knows that it's the year 2022 that we are in the counseling setting, but our instinctual survival brain, it still thinks that we are hunter-gatherers, right? So when we are told what to do, the instinctual survival brain intervenes. It thinks that um, as a submissive act, it will lead to less access to resources and mating opportunities. And I also add that these... Um, the, the instinctual survival brain behaves in exactly the same way it did in the African savannah when we were hunter-gatherers. So it prompts us to behave in the opposite manner. And this tendency to be oppositional becomes more active when we sense that we are in a position of power for the simple fact that if we challenged a more powerful social opponent, it could lead to physical harm. 
So when we sense that it is we that are in a position of power, we tend to become oppositional. And when it comes to behavior change, it is the client that is in a position of power, not the counselor, simply because it is the client that decides how to conduct himself or herself. So for behavioral interventions to be effective, we must not trigger instinctual resistance to behavior change. In other words, we must not make the individual feel pressured to behave in a certain way. Because if we do, the individual as the ultimate decision maker on whether or not to change behavior, will make use of their instinctual survival mechanism to assert such position of power. Right? So in other words, within a motivational interviewing framework, we shift the individual from, from an instinctual survival mode to a collaborative mode where the possibility of change can be explored within an evolutionary safe environment. Now, does it make sense? Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear, Bill, loud and clear. Um, okay, wow, thanks for that. Um, I I, I'm really looking forward to seeing where we go from here. That was, um, that was some very um, original thinking in regards to what you've been working on. And um, I know that Alan said he was chomping at the bit. So I'm going to open up the gate, Alan, and you can take off. Thank you, Joel. Um, so... There are a number of problems with, from my perspective with taking an evolutionary psychological approach to understanding MI. One is with evolutionary psychology in general, with this set of what have at times been suggested or sort of just so stories about our early uh, development. The evolutionary psychologists start from this taken for granted premise that we were in these small hunter-gatherer uh, groups. And it's all incredibly laden with patriarchal and masculinist assumptions about social functioning. There's nothing in the discussion of social dominance and submission about cooperation, collaboration, some of the other ways of being that are so central to MI. Um, it also it, uh, makes a set of assumptions about um, a, a kind of reductionist, deterministic framework about behavior that really runs counter to the spirit and the uh, set of assumptions brought to MI by, say, someone like Carl Rogers, whose work is the foundation of MI. And so I think if, I think if we're going to uh, probably part of why I'm chopping at the bit is, Bill, you describe you, you, your description 
was full of assertions of fact. This is how it was, and this is how it is. And I'd really like to open us up to a much more collaborative and uh, exploratory framework, because there are certainly other theoretical models that can account for uh, the effects of MI other than the evolutionary one. Yeah. What I think um, is that it would be presumption of mine to say that uh, there is only one theory that uh, explains MI. Obviously, the understanding of, of MI requires a multi-level, multidisciplinary in our approach. But one thing um, I tell you is that um, what I'm talking about here is about collaboration, is about a group living adaptation. The most pivotal step in the evolution of humans as social beings was this ability to form hierarchies. Hadn't we have this well-developed biological social dominance regulatory you know, system, we wouldn't have been able to live in society or even to survive throughout the ages because we only survived throughout the ages because we could organize ourselves in groups. And, um, and, and, and that's, you know, cooperation. And one thing about this approach is that if you look at um, psychological reactance, it is a biological tendency. And as a biological tendency, it has to be an adaptation. It has to have helped humans to survive throughout the ages. And if you look and it, in my opinion, just give me two minutes, it fits really well with um, motivational interviewing because one of the strongest predictors of a, uh, a, a, a cycle as a reactant response, one, one of the main predictors of reactants is having had one reactant response. Once you have had one, you are most, more likely to have a second and a third and a fourth one, and also make the counseling session stressful. And if you look at our motivational interviewing, both counselors and, and um, clients, they feel very relaxed from the very outset of, community, of, um, of the counseling. And I think that's one of the reasons because the counselor takes the lower place and indicates to the individual, I'm not here to challenge your uh, dominance status. We are not going to engage in a dominance battle here. I'm the one that's taking the lower place here, which makes the person really relax. And one thing that we know is that once we've had one reactant response or two or three, we become stressed. And when we become stressed, what happens to our instinctual survival brain? It becomes sensitized. We, we, we used to think about the fight or flight 
uh, reaction, but that's not the only response that becomes sensitized. We, our instinctual survival brain also starts scanning the environment for signs of challenges to one dominance and status. And, uh, and so it starts scanning the environment for signs of being told what to do and react you know, to it. So I think when it comes to, you were talking about collaboration, that really enables that collaboration between the, the client and the, the counselor. Jerry, what are you thinking? You're muted, Terry. So I'm just thinking, you know, I I I don't I miss the I miss how this is laden with um patriarchal assumptions. So I, I've been trying to follow this and figure out, okay, well, um uh, how is this uh theory sort of I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I I'm blind to them. So Alan, I guess. I would, you know, I would sort of challenge you, Alan, a little bit to, to say what you mean by that. That that's what I'm thinking. Sure. So I, I would say that the, the the taking the starting point that the that the biggest challenge of group living is working out who dominates and who submits is a very patriarchal, very masculine way of conceptualizing group living and group interaction. That certainly that may be one of the dynamics that can be in play in group interactions. I don't think any of us would, you know, could rationally deny that. Um, but the, the presentation of the idea that somehow uh, the primary challenge and the primary dynamic at play is uh, dominance and submission. And then that is what makes the turn from, you know, you know, discern, you know the human being somehow being, being able to form groups. The, 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 anthro the anthropological record for that is really, first of all, you know, I mean, a lot of this is speculation about what must have been. Um, and then use it becomes a very circular process of saying it must have been that way. And well, that's always, that's always the criticism of evolutionary theory, right? Well, that's, yeah, it that's is. A always, it's and I think it's, I think it's quite a good criticism. It's, actually, cir but, it's circular, right? So that, I mean, right. that's, that's, so I guess what I, you know, me ever the, ever the uh, practical uh, clinician uh, focused person, I just think to myself, Geez, Louise, when I'm sitting in a, a session with somebody that's been mandated because they have a DUI, this idea about dominance comes in really handy, right? So, and I thought it was kind of, I like it. It's kind of an elegant uh, idea about why that dynamic that happens that I see repeatedly might, might be, might uh, have happened. So I don't, I don't worry. I don't guess I worry too much about what I worry about is the utility of that hypothesis, not so much whether it's actually, you know, historically true or not. Right. I know, Alan, you're laughing because like I said, ever the, well, ever the, ever the, ever the, well, I thought the, the, the so no, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate you saying that Terry, because in some sense, I thought that was really going to be 
in a way, the focus of our conversation today, which is how important what you're really saying is really, I think, the approach that Bill and, Ter uh, and Steve took from the start, which is that they use theoretical observations sort of uh, at, by convenience, right? So picking and choosing. So you read the MI text and you've got all kinds of different theories that are referenced because they seem to explain a little bit of what goes on in MI. So the theory of reactance, uh, self-perception theory, you know, you know, Roger's theory about, about, uh, you know, uh, effective communication. And you could probably, we could probably all name 10, 15, 20 Rokicha's work on values. And to me, the interesting question is, does it matter? Well, that, does it matter that it's incoherent? That it, what, what a good theory does is provide a, a coherent explanation for why things happen the way they do. And I think what we have are these little bits and pieces of explanations that capture, just as you said, in that situation, it certainly dominance and submission feels is, is, is certainly at play. But does it matter that we don't have a theory that actually pulls these different observations together? So Dave, that's Dave, Dave Rosengar's question from the chat is exactly that. He says, dear Terry, do you need evolutionary theory or psychological react? Is it sufficient for understanding the response? So no, nothing's ever, you know, never, no theory is ever comprehensive in explaining a response. I just want to touch on something. It's the only thing I care if I say today, and it's kind of a good time to say it. So I'm just going to throw this in and then I want to be quiet a little bit and hear what others have to say, which is that I think the thing that's interesting about theory and MI, and this is like maybe one of the only original insights I've ever had about motivational interviewing is that in every other theory of how you do clinical interventions, they're based on a theory of psychopathology. This is why the per this is how the person got sick or bad or disordered or off track or whatever terminology you want. And that tells you what you need to do to fix it. And I think the motivational interviewing came about largely because Bill and to a larger extent Steve weren't happy with theories of psychopathology. They didn't in they didn't they made it made them queasy to have uh, to talk about theories of psychopathology. They didn't like them. And so it makes perfect sense to me that they developed a very pragmatic, chaotic, incoherent intervention that used like that kitchen sinked a lot of things, right? So that they could I think in a lot of ways sidestep the entire issue of psychopathology. So you can receive motivational interviewing without having a diagnosis. And that is not true of many uh, and most of the other empirically supported treatments we have. So that's enough out of me. Can, can so I, I just... Hang, hey, Bill, hang on a second. I want to bring Kathy into the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in what your reflections and thoughts are, Kathy. Well... You know, I'm sitting and I'm listening and I'm, I, I sort of anticipated that I was going to feel, you know, that my brain was about to explode in different directions. Um, so in preparation for this, I was started to ask myself some questions about, well, you know, the, the, the title of this webinar is, uh, do we have a theory and do we need one? Um, and I thought, OK, focus on that. You know, do we have one? Well, no, we 
like has been sort of described, you know, I always loved the idea that MI is a bit of a magpie, you know, it goes around picking up the nice shiny things that really make sense and pull together a sort of a, a roadmap almost of trying to understand some of the things that can be proven through research or can be investigated anyway through research. Um, and, you know, so that good scientific basis and in, in trying to uh, continue to understand what is helpful and what's less helpful. And then back to, well, in my own life, my own professional development, where have theories helped me? And I sort of have this reaction <laughs> to theories. So I realized that I have a reactance to a sense of shoehorning something that I see as rather uh, much more uh, sort of artful than, uh, you know, it's more conforming to me, I suppose. There's a sort of more reductionist uh, sense for me once we start going down the road of let's concretize this in a theory. Uh, but that's then I needed to ask myself more, well, what do I mean by that? And I, I sort of looked up the definitions of theories. I went right back, you know, to sort of, you know, asking, do I even understand what a theory is? And, you know, I just found myself getting more and more frustrated with trying to create a sort of uh, sense and meaning uh, that I could, you know, draw a very definite picture of. So I, I much more prefer this sort of artful approach to things and asking, you know, in my training of MI. So this is the other bit that I was reflecting on because I do love the idea of the evolutionary sort of um, I, I, how, how we develop and not uh, ignoring uh, a lot of um, that sort of instinctive stuff that we can't understand and we can't explain. And I loved listening to Bill Miller when he was presenting his thoughts around Bill Neto's theory um, uh, toward a, a theory of MI. And it made um, really beautiful, he, he just painted a beautiful picture of this, the, the, the values that we hold dearly around, um, you know, being humble in our understand seeking to understand and taking that lower place and being respectful and um focusing you know it's a race to the heart really which is what i think mi is really about is about a race to the heart in a very skillful way so you know i, I sort of like that more instinctive how we how can we tune in and and tune into that and I feel like I'm rambling a little bit here now, so I'll, I'll maybe stop. <laughs> but those are where my thoughts are. They're, they're all over the place, um, but I'm still not convinced we need, uh, I, I don't think we have a, a theory, but I'm not convinced we actually need one um, is really where I'm sitting. I went down a similar rabbit hole that you did because I, I went and I looked up, well, what do I, how do I define theory? And I compared it to what, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary does. And, and then I started thinking about that and started going, well, okay, motivational interviewing Bill and Steve and have never written an explanation of why people do what they do. 
other than they become, like some people become ambivalent about change. And as Dave put in the chat, there's not even a chapter on what is motivation, right? So then in a recent conversation I was having with Brendan Murphy over in, in he's in Ireland, um, we started talking about first principles in regards to kind of breaking motivational down to its fundamental components and looking at what that was. And, and in my mind, it was kind of like what Terry said, it's kind of like a house was built and then over time, they started adding on different rooms. And so now it's at a point where we got this house, it's functional, um, but it's not like it was all built at the same time. You can tell it's been built over the years. Um, and is it one of the things that the, 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 the sum of the parts is greater than the whole? Or is it, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure whether what the theory is beyond that some people become ambivalent around change. And if we can provide an empathic therapeutic relationship with them to explore and resolve their ambivalence, paying attention to how they talk about change, then it increases the likelihood that they might make a decision towards making the change. So I, I think that the bit, Bill, I'm going to give it back to you, Bill Neto, after this, that you were talking about, about the reactants, the word empathy just kept coming through my head around how, how that reactant gets somewhat neutralized in the conversation as long as the counselor is working earnestly to express empathy. Yeah. Can I just very quickly uh, give an answer to that? So in motivational interviewing, we need to create an environment uh, a change environment. And what we do is not only allowing the, the, um, the client to actually voice their own opinion, their own ways of how they're going to go about changing. I mean, that's only one part of it, of creating that um, uh, change environment, but not creating that reactant response. But we also need to create a, an environment where the individual feel safe, right? Not only high, uh, social hierarchically safe, but also physically safe. And if you look at motivational interviewing, the Rogerian techniques, they form the basis of what we do as clinicians. And when, for instance, when we use empathy, we're actually talking directly to the person's instinctual survival brain. What we are saying to the person is, hey, I care about you. I'm not going to harm you. There is no need to activate your instinctual survival mechanisms. And it's the same when we use a non-judgmental approach. I'm not gonna judge you. I don't have bad feelings about you. You don't need to activate this instinctual mechanism. And also genuineness about the, the, you know, the person, if we don't actually care about the person, the person will know because the amygdala in the primitive brain is always scanning the, uh, 
the person we interact into for signs of threat. And when the signs of threat are not there, those mechanisms are not going to be activated. And that creates that uh, change environment. And also using the, the Rogerian you know, counseling skills to make the person feel heard and, and accepted. And um, all of that serves, serves to enhance that, that sense of social support and that um, and create that safe environment where the counselor can actually go smoothly. But also the listeners, they may be asking why adaptations related to the formation of hierarchies, they have such strong influence on behavior. But if you look at um, human life, uh, hierarchy is at the very core of our existence, right? Um, initially, we organize ourselves in small groups to forage more efficiently. Later on, we built pyramids and we built a stone hange. We're able to move in you know, a very heavy rocks that weigh many tons. Nowadays, we build planes and computers and cars. It's all a uh, product of a um, hierarchical organization. A company is a hierarchical organization. A country, a government is a hierarchical organization. In our families, we organize ourselves in hierarchies, even with our friends. So it's at, at the very core of human existence. So these adaptations related to hierarchies, they actually, they are very important for the survival of the human race. And all of this, what I, I was talking about before, this tendency to, to, to tell people what to do and to resist you know, being, being told what to do. It explains a lot of psychological uh, phenomenon. For instance, it, you know, it, if you have a look at uh, you know, sustained talk, the, the flip side of uh, change talk, right, which is you know, not letting the person tell us what to do. And if you have a look at the writing reflex, you know, what's the writing reflex? It's us telling people what to do. It's not us being told what to do. And it also explains why oppositional behavior is actually hardwired in our brain. And also uh, uh, why non-adherence -adhe is so attractive for so many people. So it doesn't only explain one segment of, uh, of counseling in general. And I go even further, we can achieve this sense of uh, the, in a warm, caring, counseling relationship, we may achieve this um, non-activation of, of our instinctual survival, you know, brain, because the individual feels safe, irrespective of whether it's in a 
motivational interviewing context, you know, or not. However, with motivational interviewing, we are targeting these mechanisms from the very outset of counseling. And that's why motivational interviewing is so good for brief interventions, because in other forms of therapy, we have to demonstrate that yes, you know, we, you know, we care, you know, and, it, and you know, it takes time to deactivate all of these uh, mechanisms. And in motivational interview, when you go straight to the point from the, from the very beginning, right? So um, I hope that um, help, helps you to understand where I'm coming from a little bit better from an evolutionary perspective. So I think the evolutionary psychological perspective or theory is certainly a theory that we might consider for trying to explain MI phenomena. It, um, I had thought that this was intended to be a conversation about a variety of possible explanations. Absolutely. Carry uh, on. And uh, I just want to, I want to echo a comment actually that Marav uh, made in the chat that the language we use to talk about the people we are and the people we serve is really important that when you use reductive deterministic language when you describe me as a motivational interviewer as speaking to somebody's amygdala you are not speaking a language that has anything to do with my experience of myself or of the client in the conversation and if you come at this from say we don't just use rogerian techniques in mi MI is a person-centered model of counseling. The person-centered model rests on a certain foundation of understanding who we are as human beings, which is very different from that mechanistic, deterministic, reductive model that evolutionary psychology offers. It's a model of people not focused on immediate short-term survival, dominance and submission, and power, but a model that starts from the premise that we have a natural, inherent, self-actualizing tendency, a movement in the, a natural movement, not in the direction of selfish gain that we and and loss that we have to then manage in our relationships, but that there's a natural uh, uh, tendency to move for all human beings to grow in the direction of uh, of pro-social values and a pro-social way of being. And if you start there, I know. Let me finish my thought, Terry, and then I'd love to hear yours. But if you start from that mention built, that view of the human being, the way you account for the processes of MI, the effects of MI, is very different from if you start from 
that sort of evolutionary psychology perspective. So all I, all I wanted to say is, Alan, can you appreciate that that's also circular as a theory and that it also makes suppositions that are untestable? I think those there, it makes suppositions that are not yet tested. And I think research, the, why is theory important? Well, right, research, research you know, without theory is, is blind, but theory without research is empty, right? That's, that goes back to Kant and Bourdieu. I knew we reason, were going to get to Kant. We were going to get to Kant. It's sooner the or later. The reason, the reason why we should, I think, be showing up formulating theories is that theories tell us what we should be trying to test. And we shouldn't start from the assumption that people are Rogerian beings. And we shouldn't start from the assumption that people are, are evolutionary psychological beings. That the goal should be to formulate the theory to then ask ourselves, how do we test the assumptions of that theory? How do we actually provide evidence in one direction or another that people are more like this or people are more like that? And therefore that, for example, why does reflective listening have the impact that it has? Why should listening reflectively have the effects that we observe? Well, it could be because it soothes the person's amygdala Yes, it could also <laughs> it could be because uh, it's the establishment of an I thou relationship where a, a person meets a person at a level of respect for each other's autonomy, respect for each other's potentialities. And when you compare those two sets of languages, it leads you to behave in different ways, to think different way in different ways. And we should have some way of trying to figure out which of these ways is better. Couldn't it be both? both uh, if you have, well, if you have, you can't both say, you can't both believe, uh, adhere to self-perception theory, which as Bem laid it out was a radical behaviorist theory. It was a radical behaviorist answer to cognitive dissonance theory saying you don't need to talk about internal processes at all, right? You, we just infer our reasons for acting the way we do by observing our own behavior the same way we observe others' behavior. You can't- You're talking about- you're talking That about can't be, be true. That can't be true at the same audience. time as a Rogerian vision of human being is true. Both can't be, we can't, we can't hold both because they're contradictory to each other. Now, maybe there's a way of finding a third term, a synthesis, a dialectical way of, but you can't say, well, I believe this and I believe this, when the two things are contradictory, you can't say it without being incoherent. I was, I was saying, I was saying both and in the sense of conceptualizing what's happening with reflective listening as being something that is um, creating a atmosphere of unconditional positive regard and acceptance with the client and at the same time speaking directly to the client's limbic system yeah that's yeah. what i was saying it's like you it depends on the level of analysis that you that you're looking at right are you looking i mean those things human beings are complicated and it could be that things are true at various different levels 
of their uh, of, of looking at that blah not very well, well human beings either have something like uh free will oh my they, god or, or they or, <laughs> or they don't that's what's at stake here terry the german existentialists are next you bear you mark my words they are coming <laughs> Oh, we're always uh, there in the background, right? <laughs> hey, what, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and look, you, uh, you say no. Free will is a myth. Free will is just a is a just so story. We're really just determined. That has a whole set of implications for how we understand ourselves, for how we understand each other, for how we understand our interactions, and those implications are have have weight they have weight and if you are and and so that's the level at which i think theory tries to 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 understand right or to speak happy oh goodness i don't know what to say i'm just sort of sitting thinking a lot of things that um are frustrating me you know this this is where i feel like i'm getting put into a straitjacket you know i'm having to compare one thing from another thing and and we're going to really understand it and you know as terry said we're very complicated beings and my natural sort of you know tendency my my sort of primal sort of need my instinct pulls me in a much more uh Again, I'll go back to that word, creative, artful, rather than this sort of, I, I, I hugely respect these brains of all these, you know, psychological theories and, you know, the, the um, epistemology of trying to understand things. I, I can respect it, but I suppose my heart um, always sits very strongly in that sort of place of, uh just you know ignorance probably and you know recognizing that i i start from that place of humility and ignorance when i'm working with people uh who are struggling with with um confusing thoughts and distress and and lots of of trauma and all sorts of problems and i i suppose that spiritual side of me sort of uh is, is a loud voice that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling is is uh, being, you know, made reduced that reductionist bit. It's sort of being reduced, and I, I, I was again when I was looking to think, well, what are my feelings around theories and the usefulness of them? And I think in the in my trainings, so when I'm helping experienced, you know. Uh, very well-trained uh, professionals to consider whether MI is something that they want to integrate and use and and they're they're struggling with their understanding of how this MI that I'm trying to uh, describe and help guide in skills and they're constantly comparing you know well is this this uh, you know do I need you know this and it's sort of the, you know, it's back to, I suppose I, I go 
very much out of from a, 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 a from a skills building, a, 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 an understanding, a framework, a, a roadmap of well, what is MI, uh, and the heart is the first place I'm starting in, and then as the hearts sort of mindset and heart set get um, more congruent with what I'm um, trying to explain, and and then the technical side, that's where people then start struggling again. So it reminds me of this sort of, how do I help guide people in their making sense of MI in the, the messiness and cluttered sort of already sort of established skills or, or approaches they're using. And they're still, they're still uh, hungry to learn how they can help people who um, they feel are far far away from making changes that will help them so that to me then i love being able to draw on a, a, a whole range of different theories in a very light touch way uh, just to make sense um, and then i come into that sort of you know I, I, one thing i was reading around that sort of just struck me as a an important piece here of um, this sort of spiritual side of, of what I believe any good helper is has 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 an hopefully an abundance and it was a, just a saying that was in around spiritual wisdom that said uh, I wrote it down so it says that you know the world is made up of stories it's not made up of facts uh, although we tell ourselves facts to piece together the story so well, that's a theory Kathy that's well, exactly that's but do we have to <laughs> Do, do we have to sort of constrain it or something? Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. we do. If we want to do science and if we want to advance knowledge, we do. I think there's a different set of requirements for what we do in training, as you're saying. And if, if you're living in the world of training, a lot of this, the, the, the theoretical level of discussion is not necessarily relevant. It's certainly not what people come to our workshops for. Um, they want to learn how. Uh, and a little bit of why. So why, when I do this, why does this, why should I do this? Like, why does it work or what effects does it have? But when we're thinking about advancing the field, when we're thinking about advancing our understanding of why does MI work the way it works, when it works, what are the mechanisms of action, the, the level at which Terry's research has, has, has focused, um, then that implies certain theoretical assumptions, the, certain theoretical foundations. And we need to be able to say, this is our explanation for why this happens. And then we need to be able to test whether that explanation holds up. And if it turns out not to be, in a, a, if it doesn't hold up, if, then, then we should get rid of that explanation, right? So it mattered when Bill went in and in, in, in Bill and Steve in the early days, when Bill went in from cognitive dissonance theory in the original article to talking about discrepancy. Right? That was a theoretical shift. Right? And it made a difference because it went from a fairly cognitive dissonance theory, again, a fairly reductive model of talking about cognitive inconsistency and a drive towards consistency, towards something more about values and the experience of acting in a way that's discrepant with my core values. 
So that was a theoretical change in MI that really made a difference, I think. And I think big picture, it's at that level that I would love for us all to be paying more attention and having more conversation. Um, and I, if I could ask for anything today, Terry, I loved your, your point about psychopathology and sidestepping psychopathology. I'd love to hear, you know, as you think about the research you do and looking at mechanisms of action and MI process, are you, do you see yourself as developing a theory of why MI works, how MI works, uh, and how we ought to do MI better and what, and what makes a difference? And what, what are the theoretical implications of that research? No, uh, I don't see myself developing theory of why MI works. I see my, I mean, I see myself, my research is about like, um, if MI, if it is much more practically focused, like, okay, what are the, what can we define as the mechanisms that are more, more uh, proximal as opposed to more distal? I'm more interested in what's happening in the process of therapy than I am in why the person got to be the way they were before they came in the door. Uh, the, the, the kind of research that I'm interested in is if we think about human beings uh, or, or human phenomena existing on levels, like when I talk, when I teach psychopathology, I say, okay, so you can talk about human beings at the cellular level, right? There's things about human beings that you can only understand if you look at them from a cellular level. And if you try to look at them from a behavioral level, you're never going to be under, able to understand them. And the, you can only understand things if you look at them from the point of view of organs. Like you've got to know everything about the liver and it's all about driven by the liver, then you get this. And if you try to look at it just from cells, you don't get it, right? And you can go further and further up the chain and you can talk about, let's say you talk, so at the top you might have like spiritual functioning, but certainly somewhere near the top, you're going to have something like behavior right? Like disordered behavior or complex behavior in human beings, which you can never understand the behavior or the phenomena at one level by looking at it from a lower level, right? So you can't look down and look at cells to explain complex human behaviors. It just never works, right? It doesn't even necessarily work for the brain because you can't explain anything complex about human behavior by just knowing what's going on in the brain. You know, you got to know about the social system. You got to know about the learning history. You got to know about all other kinds of things. Like you would think, oh, you find this lesion and that's schizophrenia. And then the person's going to behave this way. Nope, not true. Right? So I don't know why it couldn't be the case that there are lots of reasons why like a, an evolutionary perspective and a human, uh, person-centered perspective and a behavioral perspective and a sociological perspective that are really kind of like levels of analysis. And one kind of one perspective doesn't really inform the other. You really need to know about them separately in order to be able to understand the contribution they make to the whole, which is kind of an emergent process, right? A human behavior is an emergent process. It's more than just the levels that are underneath it. And 
what's really interesting is when you find perspectives that have different recommendations. Now that's what's interesting to me. So if you're sitting down and like, and you're doing motivational interviewing with the person and you want to do it from Bill Netto's perspective, or you want to have that informing what you're doing, how will that lead you to do something different than what would come from one of these other perspectives? So far, I don't hear that. So far I hear like every, every perspective, all roads lead to Rome and everybody does the same thing. But what I would be interested in is how these perspectives might tell us to do something different and then there you got science because then then you can you can have a trial where you compare those things in a fair way to see what leads to a better outcome Woo! i love can it I, can, can i throw yeah, out can, a topic can i say something about yes, it go ahead, Bill. In, 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 in the beginning you know i mentioned that it would be presumptuous of mine to think that there is only one theory that would would explain uh motivational interviewing and I completely agree that uh, it requires a multi-level, multidisciplinary approach. But one thing that Moria, you know, said that, um, you know, that Terry said that that I um, I really could relate to is okay. You have a theory of cycle of motivational interviewing, and how does it, you know, uh, lead you to do something different in the uh, counseling setting. For, I don't know if you remember Project Match from the 1990s, right? They compare, um, <laughs> yes, right, uh, you know, compare people with problem drinks and, and to see um, how they would respond to different types of uh, treatment to try to match to the optimal. Uh, type of treatment and one of the things that came out of it which I think was the only good prediction that came out of it was that angry defensive clients they benefit they they benefited more from motivational interviewing so what that finding was saying was that people that score very high on psychological reactants, they have this tendency to be oppositional and dominant. The ones that um, enter the counseling uh, setting are certain their dominance, are certain the authority. They are more suited for motivational interviewing because in motivational interviewing we start the counseling session by saying hey there is no dominant struggle here right i'm not going to try to dominate you i'm not going to start to to tell you you know what to do and that's why motivational interviewing is so effective for people that are highly reactant now if we go back to the 1960s uh, counseling in the area of, you know, drug and alcohol, in the area of alcohol and, and other drugs, they were very dictatorial, right? The, the counselor was very much into power challenge. What they did back in the 60s was to cater to that small proportion of the population that scores high in psychological reactance and they are amenable to being told what to do so it really oh. helps this evolutionary perspective right to to use motivational interviewing more effectively 
Oh, so so. Well, I don't. Th I, I will say I don't think that that the evolutionary psychology is the only way to understand. Uh, I agree. The, I agree. The, the the phenomenon you're describing, but but let me throw out a different idea. If you, I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, a topic that that I think maybe makes it important what theoretical framework we we start from. Um, in his in the book he published just a couple of months ago uh, on Second Thought, Bill introduces. A, the construct of vertical ambivalence into mo into motivational interviewing and what vertical ambivalence is and i just i did a paper on this at icmi last week so i'm very much immersed in this and i'm really interested in others thoughts what he what it said is normally we always think of ambivalence as horizontal as two conflicting motives both of which at least two were di direct motivational directions both of which we are aware of so we know, right, approach avoidance, approach approach, that, that, you know, that whole framework. And when a person is ambivalent, they're pulled in conflicting directions, and they know the conflicting directions in which they're pulled, um, or they can articulate it if they're asked about it, if they're helped to talk about it. In vertical ambivalence, one pole, one motivational pole is unconscious. The person does not know that they have that motive and the example that Bill gives to illustrate the existence of vertical ambivalence is a story from his own experience that he told in Quantum Change, uh, in the book Quantum Change, where he describes uh, his own uh, indifference he thought about having children and how at a certain moment, after a series of, of very interesting events that I think have implications for what we do in MI, he suddenly became aware that what he believed had been a lack of interest in or indifference in children actually was, a, was uh, the result of his having repressed uh, a set of memories and a set of experiences that he had in childhood that had caused him to decide in that moment, I don't want anything to do with children. And that when he became aware, when the when, when this when derepression occurred, when he became aware of he, these memories again, he immediately realized that in fact, he very much did want to be a parent and that he did have a lot of love to give children. And this resolved his ambivalence. It had been, he described it as a period of many years of discussions between he and Kathy, uh, she wanting children, him not. And I'm not saying anything private, right? Bill published this twice now. He put it, he put it again in on second thought. Um, and it was only when this repression came undone, when the censorship was ended, and he gained access to these repressed memories that he could resolve his ambivalence and know exactly what he wanted to do. Now, it seems to me that that phenomenon, if we're going to say, where the heck does that fit in motivational interviewing, right? Can we work with vertical ambivalence? How do we explain what or do we accept a psychoanalytic metapsychological explanation of repression and the return to the repressed? That doesn't feel like a good fit with MI. 
what model, what theoretical framework will allow us to understand that vertical ambivalence is, is a phenomenon and then it's a phenomenon we may encounter in MI and then how should we address it in MI if we encounter it and how do we recognize it? Yeah. And I think thing, this is what I think is at stake in some of these theoretical conversations. Yeah. Well, one thing that I can say, I'm not an expert on, on vertical ambivalence, but one thing I can say is that the human brain is formed um, by different units that were formed at different points in time throughout human evolutions. And these units in the human brains, they don't always work together. Sometimes they hold contradictory you know, beliefs. For instance, you may have the, in the cortex, the frontal lobe, the thinking part of the brain thinking, I want to give up you know, smoking, and you may have another part of your brain holding contradictory belief, like the subconscious uh, non uh, uh, subcortical brain say no, assert your authority, keep on doing it. So what I'm saying is that different parts of the brain, they hold different beliefs. They don't always work together. And one thing that motivational interviewing does do is to bring these different parts of the brain uh, to work in harmony, to work towards the same goal. Okay, you may have the subcortical brain trying to undermine the wishes of the thinking brain and then motivational interviewing it, it what it does it gives more influence the techniques leads to uh, the more the conscious brain the the thinking brain to have more influence on behavior and other parts of the brain, like the subcortical brain, having it, it weakens their role in decision making. So that's all I, you know, need to say. Well, well, I think that's an interesting set of hypotheses, and and I think you know uh, Sarah Feldstein Ewing's work, you know, the beginnings of some efforts to do. Uh, neuroscience around some of the constructs of MI, um, I, I, I think is fascinating work. I think it's um, something like what, uh, along the lines of what, what we've been talking about, which is, you know, does this generate, does, it, does the theory generate testable hypotheses that we can either uh, support or, or find to be not supported, which might then lead us to change our practices, to do something different as a result of the fact that this hypothesis uh, was supported, that if what we see are increasing cortical, you know, frontal lobe control and decreasing uh, control from more primitive levels of the brain and behavior, as a result of motivational interviewing, then that's an interesting finding that may have implications for maybe, and this was suggested in another talk last week at ICMI, maybe we should be thinking about activities that help strengthen people's frontal lobe. You know, what does it mean to help people develop greater frontal lobe control, greater executive control, strengthen the 
the the the you know cortical functions as opposed to subcortical functions. If that if there's evidence of that, that might suggest that what we do in MI or what we integrate into MI ought to be uh, something things we're not doing ex exactly just yet. So to me, the, this is the potential value of, of of theory in its relationship with research. But there is evidence that when we engage in MI neuroimaging studies, they show that the person um, the person becomes engages in introspection so that uh, high level cognitive circuits become more active so we do have um, evidence that, that that is the case right so we go from less activation of the limbic limbic system to activation of higher order cognitive circuitry I would say we have some preliminary, interesting preliminary findings that we want to be very careful not to go from. We've got a couple of neuroscience studies. Some evidence. Therefore, we have, yeah. But some it, evidence. That, that, that's what I said. We do have well, some I'm, evidence. I'm aware that it's, we're, at, we're at an hour, coming up on an hour and a half, and I feel like we've just now got to the point of conversation um, through <laughs> having a very robust conversation which is usually the case. That doesn't mean we're going to unplug. I'm just letting people know that, you know, we, we've, we've been known to, to, to keep going. So that's not a big deal. Um, you know, Alan, there's something that, that you said. There's something that you said um, that, uh, that, um, that kind of made me think about something. And then you talked about the separate, you know, when Bill drifted out of cognitive dissonance more towards self-perception theory. And, you know, it was a difference that made a discrepancy. 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 Sorry. So it was. It was a difference that made a difference between because Bim and Festinger they were talking about similar things, but they were looking at it very differently, and how this happens, and that was the shift, you know, in in sort of motivational interviewing. I'm wondering if we were to look at, have there been or are we in the middle of another shift? I know Change Talk was a shift in motivational interviewing. That's very different than encouraging people to elicit, eliciting self-motivating statements from people to directly paying attention to and working with both sides of ambivalence, right? And, and listening to how people talk and Terry and other people's research has done that. And now you've introduced this idea of vertical ambivalence through Bill Miller. Yeah, it's Bill's, was, Bill introduced I, it. I'm just thinking, having fun with it. Yeah. I, Right. I was thinking about sort of Bartholomew's kind of quadrants of attachment. And now are we are we thinking about like horizontal ambivalence and then vertical ambivalence? And we're trying to track where somebody's at. What quadrant are they in in regards to their ambivalence? And we're looking at this. Now, I never thought I would hear Bill Miller inferring psychoanalytic and psychodynamic thinking into motivational interviewing, right? Believe <laughs> so, me when so I say that, Joel, that was that's a major <laughs> shift. And I remember trying to talk to him about attachment theory and Alan Shore's work and motivational interviewing, particularly around empathy. And he just gave me one of those comments, which he said quite often over the years. That's really interesting, Joel. <laughs> but, but, but I think I think, I think attachment theory is another really good example, too. Joel. Yeah, attachment theory is another really good example of a really interesting theoretical framework 
um, that has overlaps with, but isn't completely compatible with, say, evolutionary psychological theory, or with not, or and it overlaps with and not completely compatible with, you know, person-centered theory. And the, the, to me, again, the question is, does it does it matter? You know, when when does it matter? And I think when it matters is when it has implications for for what we do and how we think about what we do and how it changes what we do in in practice, just as what we do in practice should inform our theorizing. What we observe as we're practicing helps us step back and think about, well, why is that happening? You know, what and and is you know should autonomy support be more front and center in MI as some of the process research seems to be suggesting? Um, you know, is 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 there a tension between autonomy support and cultivating change talk? Uh, I mean, these kinds of questions I think are really important questions for us to be asking, for us to be exploring in 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 research. And you know, if we're gonna, if uh, can we work with vertical ambivalence? And you know, if so, you know, I have a few ideas about how we might. I put I put them out there, but they're really just a start. Um, I think these are important questions, and I, I I I think conversations about theory are worth having. That's I suppose the last thing I want to say. Uh, that that it that there's and that that there's great value in doing what we've done for these last ninety minutes which is to look at different theoretical understandings of MI, to, to, to disagree about them, to try to, 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 try to parse them out, to, to, to try to tease apart their implications. Well, we'll do a round of, of closing remarks. Um, Alan, I'll, 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 I think um, I may have, I think I may have just may, given mine. So I'll, how would you like to round up your experience of this conversation? Oh, uh, it's been, yeah, it's been the quickest 90 minutes, I think is, uh, is very true. It's been very stimulating, very um, uh, evocative. I'm feeling, yes, I could, you know, like to be at a bar with a few drinks and mull this over a bit more. But I suppose for me, um, I think I agree talking about what theories are underpinning our our current understanding, but never losing sight of the need to be humble here and to, uh, I suppose, celebrate the artfulness of, of MI. Um, you know, to me, it's sort of that vertical ambivalence. I, I ha that's the first I've heard of it, Alan. I haven't read Bill's writings on it. But what it was conjuring up for me was that sort of whole sense of, as you, um, ha when I'm in conversations and am I a conversation with someone, I'm using MI, I'm helping, uh, you know, there's a deep, un deeper understanding of what that person uh, believes and they're getting clearer. You know, that's just, to me, a, a sense of realizing something that you didn't realize before. And that process of, of achieving some sense of um, understanding of self is where MI, I think, really gets us to the heart of, uh, in my experience. And it's a bit like slowing down to me, going back to the arts. It's like poetry. 
you know there's lots of poetry i love and there's a whole lot i really don't understand at all so theories for me are a bit like like poetry <laughs> we just slow it all down a bit <laughs> oh you bring a lot of heart and soul to the conversation Kathy. Mm. um bill what would you like to you started us off and we'll end up with terry yes i will um and uh, this very interesting conversation, reiterating something that I said in the beginning, which is that um, to understand motivational interviewing requires a multi-level, multidisciplinary approach. And I think we shouldn't engage in horse racing to see what theory is, you know, the best one, what theory, you know, explained. I think they all contribute to an understanding of motivational interviewing, you know, no, no doubts about it. And uh, it's been, and I think that what I've done here is just provided um, uh, one part of the puzzle. It's like when you look at an engine, the motor of a car, there is not only one page that makes the car you know, uh, work. So uh, that's my approach to it. And I think it's been a, a very productive uh, conversation. And I thank you all for it. All right. Thanks for waking up so early to join us. All right. Terry, you finish it off for us. Well, I just want to say what a what a treat it is to be able to meet with people and have conversations like, you know, bright people who are interested in MI, believe me, I don't get this every day. So uh, this was just a joy and a pleasure. Um, and I've already, I feel like I've already had plenty to say and I'm very happy to rest in my gratitude and stop now and um, okay. let, let people um, go on their way after such All a great right. talk. Well, and um, Ange and I, on behalf of Steve, uh, thank, all of y'all for joining us. We definitely were dialed in from around the globe today and everybody who's, who hung out with us and was shared in the chat and the conversation. Um, I know I've got plenty to think about. I've been taking notes as we go. Um, and I'm already seeing a panel for the 2023 forum, um, Mint Forum. Um, wherever it's going to be. So Terry, put on your traveling shoes next year. Or, um, or, or what about 2024 International Conference on Motivational Interviewing? Well, that could be part two. Um, so anyway, um, guys, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Terry, Alan, Kathy, good friends. Love you all. Bill, it's great to meet you. Um, thanks, Bill, for thanks for joining the conversation. us. Yeah. Thank no. you. And well, you know, well, I'm sure we'll see all each of y'all again. And uh, for those of y'all going to Chicago and the audience and here, I look forward to seeing you there. And with that, Thank I'll you. say good day, good afternoon, or good night. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Bye. All right. Yeah.